good morning. It's good to be with you again uh, on this morning. We're going to continue today in our series, uh, Live Sent. I want to spend just a few moments reviewing. Um, there are guests with us and those that were traveling on Labor Day, and so I want to bring us up to speed. You definitely, we record everything here. Our Wednesday nights this semester are being recorded and put out there on our website uh, for you to listen to, the Nine Mark series, and uh, Sunday mornings as well. And so would commend those messages to you um, when you need to be away. Three weeks ago, we finished up preaching through the books Ezra, Nehemiah. Edward finished a series uh, taking us through those books. And then the following week, we began this Live Sent series, just a short six weeks series. And we started in John chapter 20. We, as we worked through those verses, where we ended up was that we found in the pages of God's Word an empty tomb that as these Women go to the tomb. They discovered that the tomb is empty. Christ had been crucified and God had raised his son from the grave. And that Jesus in John 20, 21 says, As the Father has sent me, so I am also sending you. And so it's his commissioning of his people sending them into the world. We, we saw that there Christ was risen. He's commissioned us commissioned his children, those who have trusted in Christ, into the world. And then last week we looked at Colossians chapter 4, and we heard the Apostle Paul instructing the church at Colossae regarding their Christian witness and how it was that they would walk among outsiders. How it is that they would live out their faith among outsiders. And we created this card, we, we borrowed these categories and we created some artwork but we put it on a card and we passed it out last week so if you weren't here I would ask you to pick one up in the lobby maybe the gentleman uh, gave you one of those coming in but very quickly we passed out this card and we've identified five specific networks that we believe every single person has and and last week we talked about each one of these we looked at the vocational your vocational network students your vocational network as you as a student, where it is you're employed, where it is you spend the bulk majority of your time. And then we talked about familial networks or family networks, those people in your family who are not in Christ, that are outside the faith, that have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then we worked through the geographic ne network, those that um, live in or near you, even those that live in the country have a neighbor, your property adjoins someone, or maybe you have a neighbor on either side and across the street, but there are people in your geographic network. And we talked about a commercial network, those, those places where you frequent, where you shop, where you eat regularly, where you get your tires or your oil changed, or those types of things, the place that you trade, that you have commerce on a regular basis. And then lastly, we looked at the recreational or relational network. Are you involved uh, relationally with people that don't fit in those other categories? You know them because of someone else. But, but there, are, there are unique people that God has put in every single person in this room's life that are unique to you and, and different than everyone else in this room. Even 
even different among husbands and wives. There are people in my wife's network that are not in my network on a regular basis. And so God has uniquely put those people in your life and he's, he's put you in a specific time and a specific place. And we looked at, we cited Acts 17 that God has ordained or he has declared the time and the place that you would live and make your habitation. So it is not with accident that you would live in the time and in the place that you live and even work. And so with that, are, we said, are we being intentional? Are we, are we utilizing those people that God has put in our place in kingdom ways? Are we good stewards with that? And this week, we're going to look at Romans chapter 10. If you would turn there with me. Romans chapter 10. We're going to hear from the Apostle Paul. And, and really, we're going to look at nine to 11 in many ways. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to take one without the other. And here, but I was wondering this week as I was preparing and thinking and praying and reading, and I wonder if the Apostle Paul, you don't have to know him, but if this man that God used to pen Scripture, if the Apostle Paul were to come to Stephenville, Texas, he's not. He is with the Lord, but if he were able to come here and he were to look out among our city, among our neighborhoods, what would he what would he say? What would he ask? And I think if we as we read, as we look at Romans chapter 10, we're going to hear him asking three fairly specific questions. And, and we'll go through these today. But the first one I think he would ask is, do you long to see people saved in the context of evangelism? That's what we're looking and talking about for six weeks Do you long for people to be saved? I think you would also ask, are you praying for people to be saved? Do you petition the Lord on someone else's behalf? Maybe you would call this intercessory prayer. Have you prayed for someone that you know is outside the faith to be saved? And then lastly, he would ask, how can they hear this without someone telling them? And we'll look at that and how it relates to praying in a few moments. I have one additional question, and it came to me uh, Friday night. Uh, Part of my family, my wife and part of my family, we traveled to Dallas McKinney to a wedding. It was a beautiful event and uh, had waited many years for this young lady to be married, and all of her prayers had been answered in this young man, and it was a beautiful event. But as we're sitting there, I look in the hallway, and there's this uh, young man there that I have not seen in many years. Old friend. Um, old friend. He lives in Dallas. He's a part of a ministry there. And so they sat at our table. He and his wife and some others from Stephenville, they sat at our table. And I said, how you been, Jason? It is so good to see you. And he said, it's been a very, very difficult year for me. And I said, well, how so? <laughs> you know, we're at a wedding. Everybody's dancing. But he, he opened this door, and I need to ask, how, how so? He said, well, early on in the year, man, I was driving down the expressway, and there was a bad car wreck next to me. And I was the guy trying to pry the door open to get the body out. I just, it was really hard on me. And then he told another story, and another story, and another story. And, and finally, this, this ministry that he uh, works for uh, sent him on a retreat. They said, we need to help you process this. And they have their own counselors and things, but they sent he and his wife on a retreat. And so he goes away to this retreat in Colorado and he comes back and 
And then part of this, what he discovered in this retreat is he said, I, my wife and I need to take a vacation. We've been working um, tirelessly. They have one son, and we need to take a vacation. So he and his wife, they, they planned this very short vacation to Maui. <laughs> it's great. And so they go to Maui. It's in Hawaii. If you are geographically challenged, it's okay. It's in Hawaii. Um, and he, he said, Josh, I, I'm there. And my wife is still at the hotel, and I'm walking down the beach. And I'm just looking out, and I see driftwood around this point. And Hawaii doesn't have driftwood, so I'm curious. I want to go find this piece of driftwood. And so he goes around the corner. And he said, I turned the corner. It was out of sight from everyone. And there are these people standing on the beach. And I could tell immediately that something was wrong. So I, I approached them, and the closer I got, they, this, there was a husband and wife, and this woman was weeping, and I get closer, I could tell something was seriously wrong, and as I get closer, I, I noticed that there are two bodies in the ocean. There's a man and the woman in the ocean, Josh, and these people on the beach are frozen, paralyzed, they couldn't move. So he says, I, I move into action, and I begin to pull these lifeless bodies out of the ocean. And I get them out, and I'm saying, go call help. Call 911. Get some help. Get. And so emergency personnel there, they get, they get everyone onto the, to the shore. And, and Jason says, I, I, I turn them over, and I begin what I, little I knew about emergency response. I'm CPR, and you know, and, but there's no pulse. There's no life. There's nothing. And the emergency personnel, they show up, and they are swift into action, and they are working tirelessly on this couple. And he said, I didn't know what I'm out. You got to get out of their way. You know, they're the professionals. And I'm just praying, God, would you, would you save them? God, would you save them? God, would you give them life? And so he's a part of this ministry. He's there working through some things. He gets back home and he's processing all that. He said, I sat up in bed one night and I realized what the Lord had been teaching me about all of that. He had been teaching me about his sovereignty and salvation. I did not see that one coming. (laughs) I didn't. He said, Josh, if you've never handled a dead body, I don't recommend it. But he said, I pulled that body out of the water. They were dead. They were without life. And they were tirelessly working and working and working. And I was praying, God, would you save them? God, would you give them life? And he didn't. He didn't. I know that's pretty heavy on the front end. But it was this beautiful illustration for me about, he said, I learned at that moment what the Apostle Paul meant in Ephesians. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. But God, who was rich in mercy and full of grace, made you alive. And I I can't come here this morning without sharing that because it sets the stage. I think if we don't have that view of lostness, that lost people are dead dead, dead. It's hard because, right, we're looking at someone and they have, they have smells, right? They put on perfume or cologne or they look nice because of the way they dress and they have personality, but we don't look at them as dead. There's no spiritual pulse. There's no life. Try as they will. Try as you will, rather, because they're dead. This couple that lay there is dead doing nothing and try as all of this emergency response team did there was no life it's god who must act 
in order to give life. Regardless of where you land on that spectrum, that is, it's, it's not refutable. God alone, and if we have, if we don't have a view of lostness as the lost are spiritually dead, I don't know how we enter in a conversation and look at the scriptures about prayer for the lost. Because that will drive how and when and how frequently we pray for the lost. In Romans chapter 10, if we were to skim through here very quickly, and we'll look at some of this in detail, but, but just follow with me some of what Paul is communicating to us. He says in verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Verse 9, he says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He goes on in verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In verse 13, he tells us that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he says in verse 14 and 15, How then will they call in How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone proclaiming or preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Repeatedly, repeatedly hear Paul is communicating about salvation. He is. He, it's, it's explicit when he uses this word that you can be saved in this way, but it's also here in these last couple of verses when he says, how are they going to call in someone they've never believed? And how are they going to believe in someone they've never heard? What's he talking about here? He's talking about someone moving from death to life. Someone that's being called out of the darkness we heard in 1 Peter and into his marvelous light. He's talking very candidly here about salvation. So this first question, do you long for people to be saved? There is a burden that Paul expresses here in verse 1. He says, brothers, I mean, this explodes with emotion. Don't miss what Paul is saying. Your brothers, my heart's desire, my heart's desire is that they would be saved. Chapters 9 and 10 and 11, they're this unit, and it's talking about a number of things, but about the sovereignty of God and salvation. And if you were a guest here, you need to know that we embrace that here. We believe that God is sovereignly overseeing salvation. He is in control. We have spent many sermons and many Many posts and all of those things throughout the last number of years declaring that and preaching that and embracing that and believing that. And we believe that here and Paul is unpacking that. And he, as he writes about God's sovereignty and salvation, he anticipates some things. He's anticipating some questions that might come from these people. And so beginning in chapter 9, verse 14, he says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's God's part? So is there injustice on God's part if if he is sovereign and some aren't saved? Is he is he unjust? And he says, by no 
means. That is not the case. God is just. But he anticipates someone asking. He anticipates in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Right? Is, is ultimately he's saying, is man accountable if God is sovereign? Is man accountable in this? And Paul is saying, absolutely, yes, he is. Man is accountable. God is sovereign over salvation. So Paul, as he teaches here, he teaches that if you believe in the sovereignty of God as salvation, God is both just and man is accountable. He also addresses another question or an attitude, if you will. If God is sovereign, can I just sit back? Can I just relax? Can I just coast? And in chapter 9, he begins here and he's going to bookend this, I think, on, in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. But if God is sovereign, then what is there for me to do? I mean, have you ever... You don't have to raise your hand. I've thought that. I've thought that. God alone saves. What? What am I doing? God just saved them. I'll pray for him. I'll pray for him. I believe that he is sovereign. I've experienced it. So I've I've thought that. Can I just can I just relax? So look at what Paul says here in verse chapter nine, verse one and two. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness In the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. There's a lot of emotion there. (laughs) There is a serious amount of emotion there. And look how he bookends that in chapter 10. Verse 1 through 4. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. He's praying for Israel here, by the way is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to to knowledge. For being arrogant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul is expressing emotion here. He's not not, uh, dramatic. You know, this is not weepy sentimentalism, but Paul has sorrow and anguish. He absolutely, absolutely believes that he must do something. He's praying, but he has this anguish and this desire. And he uses these words here that his sorrow. In in fact, he wishes himself accursed to be cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers that he could. That he could take all of this if they would just be saved. And I would say here on this front end in Paul as he expresses this longing for God's people to be saved. That we not only need to follow Paul's theology but also his emotion. I'm I'm not talking and preaching this sentimentalism as I was I said earlier. Not that we need to walk around crying about everything. But But is there anguish? Is there sorrow? The Old Testament writers experience this as well. Elisha, he's anointing these kings and he's weeping 
because of what the kings are about to do to Jerusalem. Nehemiah, we heard about this weeks ago. He received news about the city in ruins and he wept for days because of the city being in ruins. Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, he looks out over the crowds of people and he is moved to compassion because they are helpless and they are as sheep without a shepherd. He is moved with compassion. He's compassionate for these people. You cannot be hard-hearted and disconnected and be compassionate. There is this pattern. Paul is not writing here from this ivory tower. He's not saying, I don't, this is not something that I only believe theologically, but he's also practicing this. He is moved, he has anguish, and he has sorrow. And I would say that if our theology does not move us to anguish or to sorrow or to weeping to some degree about the lost, then to some degree it is effective. Spiritually dead people awaiting the wrath of God should move us to a place of sorrow and anguish. Because in and of themselves, there is no spiritual pulse. They are not going to get up and be better. And try as you will, you will never save them. I have tried. Right? You, you have that person in your network we identified last week and you said, I, I've tried, I've done everything, I've done all my speeches, I've given them all of the books, I've sent them links to all the sermons, I've put them to all the websites, I've even made friends for them that I thought would tell them all the great things. And they just, they just hard-hearted, callous, resistant, stiff-arming, God rejecting His grace and His mercy. And you realize in those moments that they are far from God and you can do nothing apart from God. And knowing that that person, friend, family, or foe, is is on path to be a recipient of God's wrath, unless they trust in the fact that Christ substituted himself in their place and took God's wrath for them. That should push us, should, should drive us to anguish and sorrow. Why should we have sorrow? Well, yes, for what I said, but God also takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The scriptures are clear about that. You can read that explicitly in Ezekiel 18. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but also God values humans made in his image, doesn't he? Genesis 1 and 2 is really a part of the Bible, and it stands true today that he created male and female. Every single person in this room and every single person, seven billion or so, on the face of this earth that that are breathing, that have ever lived and that currently live today, are and were created in the image of God. Created, bearing the image of our Creator. You, me, some part of us bears His image. He does not delight and take pleasure in the death of the wicked, nor should we, and we should value those made in His image. Also, if we were to consider all that we've been recipients of, I mean, think about this, right? If you're in Christ, if you're an insider, if you've been transferred from darkness to light, think about this. Haven't you been a recipient of grace? Haven't you, haven't you, didn't you wake up this morning coming and going, man, I can't wait to worship with God's people. You're singing a song and you're like, you sang Rock of Ages and you went, I love that song. We haven't sang that in so long. 
and the truths from those, from those songs are very real to you, you you're, you're experiencing and receiving the grace of God. Now think about this. Think about this. We, I, Josh Lewis, Marty Necessary, Jennifer Heinze, Edward Heinze, Ronnie Necessary. I'm just picking on the front row here. I believe by God's grace that we are in Christ. Anyone in this room that is in, in Christ, do you believe that you deserve salvation more than your unbelieving neighbor? Think about that. I have been spared. I have been loved. I have been called beloved. I have been lavishly loved by God in His Son Christ on the cross, resurrected, absorbing God's wrath in my place and bestowing on me grace and mercy upon grace and mercy. And do I look upon my unbelieving neighbor, my unbelieving friend, my unbelieving foe and believe that for some reason, for some reason that I deserve all that I'm willing to receive more than they do. Somehow the world has this thinking that we deserve what we got and they deserve what they get. May that never be said of a Christian. I did not deserve. I did not get what I deserve, rather. I got much greater. And if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, so did you. So why would we have sorrow for the unbelieving? Why would we have sorrow for the outsider? Because of all that I just said. How would we cultivate a greater concern for the lost? I think there are any number of ways. Here's a few that I have borrowed from all over. But one, that we would meditate or think deeply on the grace and sufficiency of Jesus to save. Paul would say this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. If you read about Paul's life, it's interesting. You, you track through the book of Acts, and you read about his life, and you've got this chapter that says, Saul ravages the church. Next chapter, the conversion of Saul. It's, it's humorous to one degree. But you track with his life and you follow him. You're like, how did God do that? And Paul knows here, Saul or Paul, whatever you want to call him, he knows the grace and sufficiency of Christ alone to save. He continues repeatedly to declare that throughout the Scriptures. Also, we could meditate on the, the, the condition, the eternal, the long-term condition of the unconverted. Think about that. You, you know, you and I both know someone that is outside of Christ. And listen, I, I heard this said one time and for the life of me could not rem- remember who said it. But hell is not separation from God. We hear that and we say that. But hell is the receiving of God's wrath. For the Christian... Christ substituted himself for you. Think on that. That's not guilt. That's not shame. That is Paul's, what he's trying to teach us from the word. That's God's word for us. Also, 
meditate or think on God's work and power to save. John 6, John 16, Jesus would teach. John would write, would write things like this in John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day, Jesus says. I will raise him up. I will send him. I will raise him up. I will do that. Not you. Not anyone else. I will do that. The Father has sent me and he has given me sheep and I will raise them up. John 16, he says. John 16, verses 7 and verses and verse 8. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit of God does that. The Spirit of God convicts, con- convicts sinners of sin. We all know that if you've ever experienced that. If you're a Christian, you should know that, that, that it is God. This is God's power and His work to say the Spirit of God convicts us of sin. We, the, it's the Spirit of God that we hear say, calling to us, come, come, come. I would also say that we should pray for God to increase our love for the lost. Have you ever, have you ever asked the Lord? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but realistically said, I... If, I, if you were to ask me directly, Josh, privately, I don't have concern for the lost. I love being a Christian, but I don't think five minutes a day on the lost. Might we say, God, would you stir my heart's affection for the lost? Because Christ is my treasure, and I want them to know the treasure. And then I would also say, act this, if you've ever... If you've ever shared the gospel and experienced people coming to faith in Christ. Don't you want to do it again? You ever, I think about our team in Ecuador. This summer and last summer. You go and you, you share the gospel. I, I've experienced through the years, young and old, they share the gospel with someone. They literally, they're opening God's word and someone's eyes are open and they say, I, I need that. I want that. I desire that. God did that. And they walk away and they're like, Josh, they, it, they really believed it. <laughs> like, well, yeah, okay. The scriptures tell us that. And then they want to share more and they want to share more and they sh- want to share more. And then we come home and, and that wanes because we didn't get up on Monday morning and go looking for someone lost to tell about Jesus Christ. We didn't look for someone in our network. We didn't, we didn't think about that next to sitting next to this person in class or at work or riding carpooling or with our children. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you've got a lost son or a lost daughter. I didn't think about that. I would say act on that. We're going to spend more weeks talking about this, but we, we have to act on that. First John 3, we love in word and deed. There is action that has to happen. Secondly, I think Paul would, would ask, do you pray for people to be saved. Look, it is, it is shocking how simple this is in verse 1. He says, my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. 
It's really simple. I don't know what to pray. Just pray they be saved. God, would you save my neighbor Josh today? You say my neighbor Josh. God, it's Tuesday. Would you save my neighbor Josh today? It's really simple. Would you would you call upon God to do what he can alone can do? In the New Testament, this woman named Lydia was saved and the Lord opens her heart. Would you pray? God, would you open the heart of my coworker that they might be saved? Ezekiel, I, I cite uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel often. I love this illustration that God would take a heart of stone, this dead, lifeless, spiritual body, and that he would replace it with a heart of flesh. God, would you take that heart of stone and give it a heart of flesh? I I, they have resisted you for so long. My, my uncle, my aunt, my dad, my son, my daughter, my, my neighbor, my co-worker, the guy down at wherever, the woman down at wherever, my coach, my teacher. Would you, oh God, take their heart of stone? I, their heart is hard towards you. Would you take their heart of stone and would you replace it with a heart of flesh? So I would ask, would you simply, if you didn't get one of these last week, get one today and put a name in one of these networks, a name that you know that you're familiar with. And would you begin to pray for the people in this network to be saved? God, would you save? God, would you open their heart? God, like the apostle Paul, would you take the scales off of their eyes so they would see your son, Jesus Christ, as beautiful? God, today, would would my neighbor, would they find a treasure? Would they be in a field and in that field find a treasure? And with such joy, with great joy, they would sell everything to buy the field. Would they know your son Christ is the treasure? Would you simply pray for those in your network to be saved. When Paul prayer, prays, his, his, the scope of his prayer is very broad and it's very specific. He prays for all of the Israelites in chapter 10, verse 1. And then if we back up to chapter 9, verse 6, he knows that not all of Israel is really Israel. So he knows that not all of Israel is going to be saved. But then you get to chapter 11, verse 13 and 14, he says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Paul knows he is praying for many to be saved. God, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Would you save people in my city? Would you save my kinsmen? Would you save my, my fellow Stephen Villians. But God, but God, would you save that teacher that I work with at Stephenville High School? Because I know not all of Stephenville is going to be saved. God, would you, would you save? Would there be a mighty wave of salvation at Tarleton State University? Would you do a mighty work and do what only you can do at Texas Tech University, at Ranger Junior College? But God, would you save, would you save that guy that sits next to me in my federal government class? Paul was steadfast in prayer all through his writings. He continued to say, I don't cease from praying. And I know that this topic feels so gigantic. That's why I love 
that Dr. Whitney was here, probably one of the most helpful things that's happened to me in a very long time. I downloaded his app, the five Psalms. Every day, I'm there. God, it's, it's so good. Prayer is this gigantic thing, but would you simply begin to pray for the lost? In George Mueller's autobiography, speaking of Dr. Whitney, we, we gave away or sold uh, one of the books. In his autobiography, he, this is written, it says, I am now in 1864 waiting upon God for certain blessings for which I have daily besought him for 19 years and six months. Without one day's intermission, still the full answer is not yet given concerning the conversion of certain individuals. In the meantime, I have received many thousands of answers to prayer. I have also prayed daily without intermission for the conversion of other individuals about 10 years, for others six or seven years, for others four, three, and two years, for others about 18 months. And still the answer is not yet granted concerning these persons for whom I have prayed for 19 years and six months. Yet I am daily continuing in prayer and expecting the answer. I love that. In the Global Prayer Digest, our family gets that. There's this story of Hudson Taylor. He was a famous missionary to to China. He died in 1905. He founded the um, China Inland Mission. still exists today. And in there it was written this article about him. It says, 18-year-old Hudson Taylor wandered into his father's library and read a gospel tract. He couldn't shake off its message. Finally, falling to his knees, he accepted Christ as his Savior. Later, his mother, who had been away, returned home. When Hudson told her the good news, he said, she said, I already know. Ten, ten days ago, the very date on which you tell me you read that tract, I spent the entire afternoon in prayer for you until the Lord assured me that my wayward son had been brought into the fold. Would we simply pray? Lastly, I think Paul would ask, how are they going to hear? And he does actually ask that in this text. And I realize we're talking about prayer today, so, so maybe you don't want to hear, like I actually need to say something to people, but, but here, when you pray, would you pray like Paul does in Colossians 4? Do you remember what we looked at last week? Listen to his prayer, that a door would be open to you with outsiders for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. That's his prayer, that God would open a door so that he could declare. And in chapter 10, verses 9 through 15, listen to what he writes here. We're going to close on this note. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without some preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So we are explicitly talking about the good news of Jesus Christ here. That's what we're talking about. And in this progression, 
Paul, if you were, if you were to work through this backwards in verse 15, how are they to preach unless they are sent? If you are in Christ, you have been sent. You've been commissioned. As the Father has sent me, so I also send you. Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, he's going to every nation. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. You have been sent if you're in Christ. And if you're sent, we are to declare, to proclaim, we're to preach. Preaching happens from this pulpit, Lord willing, every Lord's day. But it is not talking simply and only about that. We are sent to declare, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. To make proclamation of the good news. To declare Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Ruling and reigning. And it's when we preach. That the miracle of hearing happens. People hear. And they believe. And they call upon the name of the Lord. And they are saved. Would it be that God would grant that our hearts desire in prayer, like Paul's here, to God the Father, for the outsider, for those outside of Christ, would be that they would be saved. To those in your specific network, those people that you know that are outside of Christ, would it be that God would grant that your heart's desire in prayer would be that he would open a door for you to declare the mystery of Christ, that simply they might be saved. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your word. We believe that it is true and that we believe, Romans 1.16, that the gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation. Father, would it be that you in our hearts, the, the, those that make up the body of Christ here at Rocky Point Baptist Church, may it be granted that our heart's desire and prayer to you for the outsider would be that you would open the door that we might declare the mystery of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name.